So in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court Dobbs decision, there was a host of questions that perhaps you heard. I know there's questions that I heard. Is God really pro-life in all circumstances? Doesn't God care about the rights of women? Why aren't Christians celebrating more? Do you really believe this will end all abortions? And on and on the questions go, right? You have probably heard those as well. But the one conversation that caused me to decide that we needed to pause what we normally do with our sermon schedule this summer and, and talk about this as a church was a conversation that came from a young adult who was sharing with me that they were having a conversation with their peers and some adults in the room and they were told by those in the room that if they supported this decision, if they supported the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, then it was equivalent to them supporting a decision to reinstate slavery. And at that point, I decided the church needs to speak into this. The church needs to know what God thinks because there's a whole lot of confusion and misinformation and we are not giving our young people a adequate witness if we don't speak into these issues and help them and equip them for the world they live in today. But here's the secret. It's not just young people who need the equipping. All of us, as we navigate these times, need to know what God's word says in regards to this issue. Now let me start by saying it's not lost on me that I'm speaking to a very mixed audience. I'm speaking to you who are here who are pro-life and you've been pro-life your whole life. I'm speaking to you who are here who are pro-life and you are pro-choice and now you're pro-life. I know that I'm speaking to some here who are pro-choice. I know I'm speaking to some here who had an abortion. I know that I'm speaking to some here who found out they were supposed to be aborted but were not. There are some here who are Christian and some here who are non-Christian. There's many different perspectives represented here and online. And that goes for, to saying for all of you as well, when you enter this conversation with people, know there's very different perspectives listening to you as well. Let me start off by saying that if you are pro-choice, I'm glad you're here. You probably won't agree with most of what I say this morning, but that's okay, and I'm glad you're here. I ask that you just listen, hear me out, and consider these things. If you're looking for a point-by-point counter-debate debate about the pro-life, pro-choice issue, I'm not going to give you that either. My job as a preacher and as a pastor is to be a herald for God, to take what's in his word and say to you, this is what God says as objectively as I possibly can, which is impossible because none of us come to this book purely objectively. But my role as a preacher is to give you what God says and help apply it to our day, and that's what I want to do. I titled this sermon, Pro-Life Questions, 
because there's many, many questions surrounding this issue. And I'm not going to cover all of the questions surrounding this issue because there are so many. And not only do I not have the time to cover all these questions, you don't have the attention span for me to cover these questions either. I'm going to give four overarching questions that mostly pertain to the church, but I think they will have answers for the complex questions as well. But if there's things that I don't speak into today, I want to direct you to our website. In our resources page, we have an article that is helpful, as well as in a place where you can download an ebook called Case for Life that lays out many, many other issues that I will be able to cover this morning, and it's a great resource for you. And so I commend that to you. So let's take a look at this together. May God be gracious to us and give us wisdom. The first question I want to look at is, is God really pro-life? Is God really pro-life? Yes, without any hesitation, God is pro-life. Overwhelmingly so. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's whole message in the gospel is that we would live forever, that we'd be people who are living. He is a living God. Currently, we, as the Psalms say, are living in the land of the dying, and we're going to the land of the living. Many people think this is the land of the living, and we're going to the land of the dying, but the Bible says, no, this is the land of the dying, and we're going to the land of the living because of who God is. He's a living God. When we want to know what God is like, when we want to know what God thinks, we have to turn to the pages of Scripture. It's the perfect standard for all of us. It's God revealing who he is and what he thinks on any given topic. The statement of faith in our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, says this in Article 2, the Bible is his will for salvation, the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge should be judged. Ideas have consequences. You're going to hear me say that a few times this morning. Ideas have consequences, and we have to have something to measure our ideas against that is outside of us, yet perfect, yet timeless, and that is God's word. Since the Bible is our standard to know God, let's look at what the Bible has to say about this issue. First of all, Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image, that's how dear human life is. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Every life was and is created by God. Also, every life is created in his image, a mind, will, emotion. Conception takes place because God created all life is created by God, and all life is sacred to God. David said this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. 
I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God created Prior to conception, therefore conception happens, therefore all life is sacred. And while the baby is in the mother's womb, God is shaping, guiding, active, working. This text tells us the mother's womb is like a sanctuary, a worship center for the works of God to take place. All of life is sacred. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. If you're looking for a place for your identity, look at Jeremiah 1.5. He knew us before we were formed. The sacredness of life is the carrying out of the plans and the mind of God. His purpose and his callings are formed in our life. God's purposes are established and the result is conception. At the time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth who was carrying John the Baptist. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby John the Baptist leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It is possible to receive from God and worship God in the womb. God considers all life sacred from conception to death. Exodus 20, 13 lists the Ten Commandments and the Sixth Commandment is you shall not murder, meaning you shall not take an innocent life. And then the next chapter, in Exodus 21, God goes and starts teaching the people of Israel how to apply these Ten Commandments. And he says this about commandment number six. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, there is, and, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Now, obviously, we live under a new covenant where Jesus fulfilled the law and his life was taken. But one cannot dismiss what we see here is the heart of God towards those babies who are in the womb. We see that in this text. Scripturally, it is overwhelmingly clear that God is pro-life. If we are going to follow Jesus, if we're going to walk out our calling as children of God, it means we have to be formed to his desires and be pro-life as well. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be formed into Christ, not to take our own agendas and say, I'm going to have a little bit of Jesus, but this is what I'm going to stand for. No, we submit our entire being to Christ and we are formed to him and we walk that out. Some things in scripture allow freedom for different opinions and viewpoints. However, this is not one of those. You will have a very difficult time supporting a pro-choice position using the Bible. 
To elevate one's choice at the expense of a life is not at all something God would be in favor for. And God wants the church to carry out his values in the world. That is our witness. The church has held a pro-life conviction for centuries. Not just when Roe v. Wade was established. Throughout the centuries, the people of God stood for life. Going back to the fifth century, we see writings in the church and the people of Israel who were standing for life. In the book of Exodus, we just read, that took place. For years, the people of God have advocated for the lives of the unborn. So given that's God's position and the church's position, how then should Christians respond to those who are pro-choice? How do we respond to those who are pro-choice? Before we respond, I think we need to consider our approach. The best way to approach those who disagree with you is to build a relational bridge strong enough to bear the weight of truth. Build a relational bridge strong enough to bear the weight of truth. We won't convince anybody unless there's a bridge where they trust us that will bear out the truth. And one way you do that is by asking questions. Explain to me. Help me understand why you believe the way you do. What about this? Teach me your position. It is an act of love to learn the side of those you disagree with to the point where you can articulate back their belief in a way that satisfies them. And I would suggest if you can't do that, then you really don't disagree with them because you don't know what you're disagreeing to. Christians should be experts in learning the opposite view. It's a gift of love to articulate back to those we disagree with their view in a way where they say, yes, that's what I believe. Now they know we've heard them. That's building a bridge to bear the way to truth. In all conflicts, someone needs to take the lead, to love and listen well. And I believe that burden falls on the follower of Jesus Christ. As I said previously in emails when this decision came out, many of us have friends, relatives, coworkers, neighbors who will react in anger and bitterness towards that Supreme Court decision. This is a huge opportunity for the church to respond and reflect Jesus Christ in his wishes, to respond in humility, honor, love, and grace. Angry, graceless, in-your-face responses are far from the heart of God. They disgrace the name of Jesus Christ and they ruin our witness. Meeting anger with anger does not win anyone over and it only escalates the conflict and pushes the undecided to no-life positions. Prideful, antagonistic Christianity may impress angry Christians but it moves people further away from Jesus Christ. As Christians, we of course stand for our biblical convictions. As Christians, we share our biblical convictions, but we do so with love. 
We do so in a way that honors the primary pillar of the pro-life cause, which is that every human being is sacred, valued, and a created image bearer of God. What we passionately believe about the unborn, do we believe about the person in front of us who disagrees with us? Do we treat them like a valued, sacred image bearer of God? Do you see how if we are not careful with our reaction and our responses, our approach towards those who disagree with us can totally undermine our conviction and our point of view when it comes to pro-life matters? It's a huge contradiction to stand for a pro-life conviction while at the same time tearing down another human being with our words, our posts, our stances, and our actions. Our first call is to love before we attempt to convince. And then when we love well, that's when the Spirit of God enters the conversation and can enter the person's heart and their mind and bring them to a deeper place of God's understanding for them and this issue. Our job is to love like God loved us. Then, once that foundation is set, now we can engage. Now we can engage in topics related to the issue. Now we can engage about things like misinformation that's said. Like when I hear people in power and stardom say things like, this is going to kill women going forward. And I think millions of women have already been killed since 1973. Millions of little girls, millions of little boys. When the foundation is laid, we can engage and talk about things like ideas have consequences. And when Stephen Hawking says the human race is just chemical scum on a random planet and that's taught to someone when they're very young and it's in reinforced through all sorts of means, through school and video and everything else, those ideas are going to have consequences. Then we can talk about things like Rebecca McLaughlin points out that yes, human beings have rights, but there are limits to our freedoms. I don't have the right to cause harm to your body. If I come out and strike you, I'm doing something out of my own volition, but it's something that harmed you. And everywhere else outside the issue of abortion, we say that is not okay. And we say it's illegal. When people say human life is chemical scum and a personal choice or right is allowed to harm others, there are huge consequences to that. A callous disregard for life is formed in the mind, and one cannot help wonder how much does a callous disregard for life play into other areas of life that we see happening almost on a weekly basis with mass shootings. And I'm not overly simplifying mass shootings. I know there's a whole lot of issues around that, but I don't believe an anti-life culture helps the situation. Life is at its best when it's lived the way that God designed. 
When Jesus came to earth, he changed the way babies were valued. Rather than being discarded on mass levels, Jesus declared babies as precious because every life is sacred to God. Then after declaring these things and many others, he said that I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die on a cross and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And you know what he did? He was crucified. He died on a cross and on the third day he rose again. And when someone predicts they're going to rise again and they actually do it, I'm going with what they said. Not only by going with what they said, I'm going to form my mind, my heart, my life around the way they tell me to live my life. And when Jesus did that, he conquered death to give life. College professor and author Karen Swallow Pryor, who is a major pro-life advocate, wrote this story, and I commend to you anything written by this woman. She said, for 10 years, once a week, I waited outside abortion clinics, offering to help women and men going in and coming out. Most of the hours I spent outside the abortion clinic were now a blur of defeat and despair, an obscenity hurled by a passerby, an occasional class with clash with clinic workers or abortionists, freezing snow, sweltering heat, pouring rain. However, punctuating all this failure, every once in a while, a woman would change her mind and decide not to have an abortion. I think I saw at least 2,500 women go into the clinics. Roughly a couple dozen of them told me upon leaving the clinic that they decided to keep the baby. And how many more changed their minds without ever speaking to me, I will never know on this side of heaven. I received such a glimmer not long ago and it arrived in my inbox as a Facebook message. It said, I'm not sure you remember me, but I met you 20 years ago outside of women's services on Main Street. I was only 15 years old. You saved my son's life. I was all alone there to start a two-day procedure. However, that night I felt my son move. And the next day on my way into the building, I met you. I believe you read me some scriptures and in a kind way, you made me aware of other options. So I decided to continue with the pregnancy. You were truly a blessing to me. Today my son is almost 20 years old and he's the best thing that ever happened to me. And when I think of him, I think of you often. During those years of waiting in front of the abortion clinics, I trusted that God would bring forth from my small efforts some sort of fruit if he saw fit. And being offered just a sliver of that reward now, I'm encouraged all the more to be faithful even in times when I don't see visible fruit. How much more love and joy we bring our Father as we patiently await the fruit that only he can bring. How we engage in this issue as pro-life Christians really, really matters. Next question. So why do pro-life people differ in this ruling? As with most things these days, the United States Supreme Court decision created two different reactions among pro-life Christians created two different camps, if you will. And I'm going to kind of call each of these camps a name just so you know what I'm talking about. 
It's just kind of a way of covering them. So as I continue, you understand me. I'm going to call one side those are the celebration pro-life Christians. The celebration pro-life Christians. And on the other side, we have the concerned pro-life Christians. So we have the celebration pro-life people, the concerned pro-life people, and instead of taking our cues from evil mindsets that want to divide, we need to realize that both groups are valid. Both groups are right. Both groups have points that we need to understand. Both groups are legitimate. And both are needed to create a pro-life culture beyond this Supreme Court decision. So I want to take time to explain why both groups are right. First one I want to look at is the celebration pro-life people. Why is this decision something we should celebrate? Simply because beyond politics, it is the right moral decision. And as Christians, we should be grateful that our country has abolished a federal law that stood in direct opposition to the value and the dignity of human life. We should be grateful that a federal law that sanctioned the destruction of the image of God has been abolished. Children are first and foremost a blessing of God, and Roe v. Wade stood against that fundamental truth. Nothing good will come to a culture that stops seeing unborn babies as people made in God's image. Let me repeat that again. Nothing good will come to a culture that stops seeing unborn babies as people made in God's image. So there should be something that resonates with inside of us that this ruling was just and sane and humane. Of course, the ruling does not solve everything. And now it's going to get kicked to the states. And now it takes the decision, puts it into legislation to the, that, the third branch of our government, which is where it should have been in the first place. And we have no idea what's going to happen going forward. But even with all those things in our face, our country is better off abolishing a federal law that allowed for the destruction of unborn children. And this is cause for celebration. This is cause for gratitude to God. Now let me talk about the other side. The concerned pro-life people. Why a cause for concern? Well, the most common one I heard is this. The concerned pro-life people want to keep in the forefront of everybody's mind that when it comes to abortion, there are sometimes two and even three tragedies taking place. There's the plight of the unborn, there's the plight of the pregnant mother, and at times there's the plight of the father. And we don't want a decision that forgets two of the three. And when it comes to abortion, both baby and mother are in distress. Almost always, the woman getting abortion, an abortion, is facing an overwhelming amount of distress, heartache, pain, and darkness in her life. And the church should care about that. The choice to get an abortion is almost always made from a place of overwhelming fear, hopelessness, and despair. And the church should care about that. 
This week it was brought to my attention through a newscast that some women blatantly get pregnant and blatantly get an abortion just to prove their pro-choice point. But I think those cases are extremely rare. And even in those cases, there's something going on internally that maybe only God and that person knows about. And the church should care. People rarely wake up and out of the blue want to take a human life. It is more complex than that. And when we see the pain and despair in the mother and sometimes the father, the church needs to be gracious and compassionate to all involved. Going back to my conversation with that young adult that was told that if he supports this decision, it's like endorsing a reinstatement of slavery. I told them that I believe a pro-life position better supports the abolition of slaves than a pro-choice position does. It makes more sense. However, the issue of slavery and the issue of abortion are very different in one major respect. In slavery, when the church, uh, in slavery, when slaves uh, were set free, the church was under no obligation to take care of a slave owner or a slave trader. The church had no moral obligation to say, now that slaves are free, we have to think of the other side. In slavery, there was one victim, and that was the slave. In abortion, there's two victims, and sometimes three. Sometimes, American pro-life politics have prioritized the care of the unborn child at the expense of the distressed mother. And pro-choice politics show care for the distressed mother at the expense of the unborn child. And Christians are called to care for both. Baby and mother are literally one flesh before birth. And after the baby is born, baby is dependent on the health and the integrity of the mother. We need to see both as the single concern in the mind of the church. And that's why at Crossview Church, we do things like partner with First Choice Pregnancy Center through baby bottle campaigns and sending volunteers and referrals and donations. So those who are concerned or worried that if we cheer and celebrate and have a big party right now, we would declare the problem solved and we would blow off our God-given calling to care for mothers and babies in need. And that's legitimate. I want to speak to those among us who had an abortion because the church needs to care for you as well. God knows you. And God knows everything that was happening at that time. He knows your internal struggle. And he looks upon you today with mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he presents before you a loving place to put your pain, to put your regret. He knows what it's like for you to see pictures of unborn babies and people screaming and how that is, hits your heart and your inner struggle in a way that you don't know if anyone could ever care or understand, and he does. There's a place of healing for you. There's a place of forgiveness for you. 
And forgive the church if they've never extended that to you in a way that made you understand. Back to the two camps. The celebration, pro-life people, and the concern, pro-life people. What do we do? Let's not make the same mistake we made during the pandemic. In that instance, unnecessary division took place in churches all across America, and both camps agreed on the majority of the issues at hand. But the enemy got involved, and people started taking rocks and throwing at the other side as the enemy smiled, and the churches were devastated and divided across this country. Let's not let that happen again. When it comes to celebration pro-life people and concern pro-life people, both sides are on the same team. Both sides share a biblical conviction for the sacredness of life, and we need to see that from two different viewpoints. And both sides are needed to go forward in a unified pro-life culture. Could it be that both sides are right? I believe it is. As one pastor said, we pick up the pro-life stick in two different places, but we're on the same side. Our enemy, Satan, always wants to divide the church. And one of the ways he does it in this issue and other issues that we've experienced in the past is he creates a mindset of suspicion instead of a mindset of love. He creates a mindset of suspicion instead of a mindset of love. And this is what I mean by that. This is what a mindset of suspicion looks like. If you're in the celebration pro-life people, you look at the concerned pro-life people and you say this, oh, those people are full of fear, bowing to culture. They're spineless. Why don't they stand up and celebrate? And a suspicion a mindset of suspicion in the other side looks like this. If you're a concerned pro-life person, you look at the celebration pro-life people and say, look how arrogant they are. They're one-sided. They don't see and have the wisdom that there's more to it than just that. And we throw rocks at each other as we enter into this mindset of suspicion instead of a mindset of love. How about instead? How about instead? We take the Christian ethic of thinking and assuming what is best about each other. What if we take the Christian ethic and assume the best about each other and say we need both sides of this? That is the mindset of love. That will counter the attacks the enemy has to divide his church. Here's what it looks like. When you're with someone who's a Christian and you're a Christian and you disagree, you say, hey, wait a minute. I love you as my brother and sister in Christ. You love me as your brother and sister in Christ. We love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's take another pass at this through that lens. And just as a side note, that could help you in every human relationship you experience. It could even help you in your marriage. When you are at odds with your spouse and you can't seem to get forward, if you, someone steps back and says, hey, I love you, you love me, we love each other, let's take another pass at this and try to listen and understand one another. 
It's walking out things like that that strengthen the church. And brothers and sisters, I fear what's ahead for us in these days in the church is going to need a church strongly unified, not fractured and divided. We have to get good at this skill of rejecting the mindset of suspicion and picking up the mindset of love. I want to close by looking at steps for the church to build a pro-life culture. Number one, you need to remember your war is not with people and your actions and your words matter. Paul said we are ambassadors on earth for Jesus. Treat those who you disagree with in a pro-life manner. Number two, stand and share biblical convictions lovingly and wisely. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Wisely learn their position. Wisely build a bridge. Live in ways that make the gospel attractive, because it is. And when something is clear in Scripture, we stand on it. But we do so kindly and humbly. Number three, stand and share biblical convictions faithfully. We don't compromise God's word. As the church, we are called not to put forth our own agendas and ideas, but what God said in his word. And we stand on that. We do so knowing he can be trusted no matter what happens to us when we do it. And finally, do not compromise the unity of the church. The unity of the church should be something that should be in the forefront and the loving heart of every Christian believer. We should fear anything that could potentially divide the church. Jesus, when he's in his final moments before going to the cross, could pray any prayer he could pray. And in John 17, 21, he prayed, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. That's how much he wants unity in the church. Let's guard the unity of the church. May God give us help and grace in this. In 1969, Dr. Bernard Nathanson served as the medical advisor for the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, now called Pro-Choice America. After abortion was legalized in 1973, he became the director at the Center for Reproductive Health, which he claimed was the largest abortion clinic in the Western world. Later in his life, Nathanson said, I knew every facet of abortion and I helped nurture abortion into what it is today. But in 1974, in an article published by the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Nathanson expressed his growing uneasiness with abortion. He wrote, I'm deeply troubled by my own increasing uncertainty that I have, in fact, presided over 60,000 deaths, at least. There is no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists at the very onset of conception. His unease was intensified by the arrival of ultrasound technology when Nathanson said, for the first time, we can really see human life in the womb. We can measure it, observe it, watch it, indeed bond with it and love it. 
I changed my mind because the new scientific data persuaded me that I could no longer indiscriminately continue to slaughter what was very clearly a human life. And all that happened when Nathanson was an atheist. His initial insight about the humanity of the unborn child had nothing to do with religion. As a matter of fact, he considered himself an atheist, but before his death in 2011, Bernard Nathanson converted to Christianity. And when asked why he was baptized and received into the church, he said this, because no religion matches the special role of forgiveness, grace, mercy, and hope that is found in Christianity. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. May the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray.